This is Juror 13. You are Juror 13. Tonight you'll hear interviews, opinions, and reports. Then you will have an opportunity to decide. This is Malice, Money, Motorcycles, and Murder, the Randy Stevens case, Savannah, Georgia. Status, currently unsolved, 21 years. Juror 13 is brought to you in partnership with Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is offering an $80,000 reward for tips leading to the successful capture and prosecution of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Randy Stevens. At the end of this program, learn how to contact Crime Stoppers anonymously to help solve this case. The ideas, insights, and theories expressed in the following program are opinions and are not necessarily those of the producers. All persons are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. To fully understand what happened to Randy Stevens, we have to look at the life he led, to the people that surrounded him, and what his interests were. What was his lifestyle? It took some work, but finding direction for this was easy, because it was just like his love of bikes, fast and straight ahead. The world of engines and speed, that's where Randy Stevens lived. I had heard repeatedly that he had lived and breathed racing, but it wasn't until I'd actually watched the tapes of his ProMod drag bike in action that I began to fully grasp it. I had pictured motorcycles. You know, just motorcycles. This thing that he was on, it looked like a ground rocket ridden by a space-age stormtrooper. I was awestruck. 135 miles per hour in four seconds. What's not to love about that? Everybody understands that Randy and racing were a unified thing. I got to speak at length with his niece, Sandra Stevens Small's daughter, Ashley, and she put it in perspective for me as she recounted a full day spent with her uncle when her mom was busy with work and other family responsibilities. Here's Ashley. The days were spent watching NASCAR. Like I remember watching NASCAR all day. Winter came, we was watching some type of sports event. Lunch came, NASCAR was on. And by dinner, I was looking for my mom because NASCAR was still on. The guy who really explained it all to me, though, was Randy's racing partner, confidant, and best friend, Carlos Wilkerson. Hi, my name is Carlos Wilkerson. Uh, I met Randy in the mid-80s at a racetrack when we was... When I first met him, he was riding for Curtis West. Uh, we became friends at that point. Uh, How old were you then? Ah, in 80, I was in my 20s. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And the level of racing was something called pro-mod racing. Right. And could you explain to me what that is? That is a, like an unlimited class with nitrous oxide. Um, run fast as, fast as you can. First one to the other end wins. What Carlos is telling us in layman's terms is that these bikes have an injected explosion of nitrous oxide which basically blasts them straight down an eighth of a mile course at speeds well over 100 miles an hour. They reach those speeds within four seconds. You really have to see it to believe it. Carlos then went on to tell me how they came to have mutual respect for each other and then eventually became friends. Oh, uh, it was... I was having some issues with my bike at times, and he came to me and asked me would I be interested in riding his bike. 
Uh, he said he kind of felt more comfortable working on it than riding it. So uh, he asked me to test it a few times, and he seen something in me that he liked, so he asked me to ride, and we would split the purse. Pretty much that's the way it all started. You know, right. Just started out testing and then it evolved from there. While I was trying to get a feel for what these drag bike events really were, I asked everyone that I interviewed the same question. What were the races like? And every reaction began the same way, with the brief pause, an unrestrainable smile, and recollections of happier times. Here's Carlos Wilkerson, Randy's niece Ashley, and Randy's nephew, D. Real pleasant. Uh, like I say, we'll go to the races. My side of the family come. His family would come, show up. And his family from Key West, Florida would come up. Just It's just a big family. And that's basically what racing was all about at that time. Family, meeting new people, gathering, having a good time. Never any, you know, fighting, foolishness at the track. It was whoever you met, they were friendly. And there were like tents up and barbecue. Yeah, tents, barbecue, um, crab bowls. I mean, it was it was more, I think everybody enjoyed eating in fellowship than they did the racing. I still miss going to the races and, you know, just having that family bonding time. It's kind of like a family reunion. Yeah, it was. Every time we had a motorcycle race, even though it was it was loud and bananas, as the children say now. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it was fun. Like, you know... That was what my uncle enjoyed doing, racing motorcycles. Plenty of time. We, um, <laughs> we was under his shed as he was working on the bike in his RV. We was, um, if I'll say it like this, if you saw Randy, I was right behind him. Okay. The last voice you heard is Randy Stevens' nephew, Nathan D. Smalls who at the time was just an elementary school kid. At the races, he was wearing his Stevens racing hat and shirt and smile. And as you heard him say, at the events, if you saw Uncle Randy, you saw D. It's difficult to maintain an unflinching facade as you watch folks overcome with emotion. And it was nearly impossible for me in this instance to watch D, now a physical giant of a man, struggle to restrain the same tears he had as a child while remembering his uncle. During our discussions of the races, it came to light that Carlos was not just a formidable opponent on the racetrack, he was among the sport's elite racers. I mean, this guy was so humble that I had to learn from another person about the time that he beat the world champ. Listen as Carlos describes. I think he's from Philadelphia. They flew down to... Uh, Bradenton, Florida at the track and uh, they did an interview and he was bragging about what he was going to do and how bad he was going to have to do me and I I didn't have any coming. I just told the lady that interviewed me just, you know, at the end just see what's, what's the outcome and at the end the outcome was I was number one. <laughs> Sadly, all this wonderful stuff, uh, the fellowship, the eating and drinking, the laughing, the cheering on of Randy and the Stevens racing team as they brought home the blue ribbons and the spoils of victory, all of it had to come to the end at the barrel of a gun. Of course, no one knew it at the time, but this race in Jacksonville, Florida was to be the last hurrah. 
But there was a slight difference in the attendees this time. A new light is shed on potential tensions that occurred because of it. Here's Carlos Wilkerson explaining what was going on. This was one of the larger races at that time. This um, is in Jacksonville? Yeah, in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, it was Monticello uh, produced production, and they uh, put a $5,000 purse up. And uh, like I say, everything was going good. We kind of struggled a little bit at the beginning, and uh, people thought, well, we was going to be counted out. And But we ended up, we went, we won. Um, that seemed to be a lot of when we was racing, we kind of struggled the first part of the race, and once we get it together, everything just clicked in place. So, okay. um, And everybody was there. Linda Stevens always went along, obviously. Yes. There's also a woman that Randy may or may not have been involved with at the time. That From my was, understanding, yeah. Right. It surprised me. Then again, maybe not so much. Randy was seeing another woman. It happens. However, it's going to play an important role later on. So now we know that we truly do have everyone together at the race in Jacksonville. Friends, family, and the woman Randy is involved with outside of his marriage. On a related note, let me say that I sat down with Linda Stevens several times at a restaurant, at a library, and then finally in her own home. She was a straightforward and self-assured woman, and I couldn't picture her standing for that sort of thing. And understanding that, I had to wonder, what was it like at the race if they were both there at the same time? We'll get to that later. It was just a few days later, October 10th, 2002, that the whole thing went down. Like everyone else I spoke to, I asked Carlos, whom is described as Randy's close, if not closest friend and business partner, to describe to me how he learned about what had happened to Randy. Where were you when you heard the news? Actually, I was at work. Um, just getting off from, about to get off from work uh, in Douglas. And uh, one of my friends uh, from that owns a cycle shop in Douglas called me and gave me the news. And how did they find out about it? Uh, he told me that he got the news from Doug Pryson. At that point, I called my wife, uh, told her what happened, told her I need to come to Savannah. And what was there when you got there? We went to, I think we ended up going to Bobby's house first. Uh, Bobby was there, Linda was there, and they say Doug had just left. Um, just kind of weird that, you know, everybody knew but me. And uh, Linda called you at some point? No, when I got there, that's when I actually talked to Linda. Linda never called me. Um, only thing she said was we were robbed. She just kept saying, well, we were robbed and trying to, you know, make like she was crying. And um, Doug Freyson was there as well? She, they said he had just left before I got there. See, I didn't get the news until later that evening. So you can hear it. Carlos clearly felt slighted. How is it that he, of all people, didn't hear about the murder of his best friend and racing partner until later that evening. And why is it coming to him from a third party? And who is Doug Fryson in all of this? And how was he delegated to make these calls? 
It bothered me to hear this from Carlos because Randy's brother Bobby had been as clear as a bell about Randy's view of Doug Fryson. Listen as Bobby Stevens explains. I wouldn't see any reason for Doug Fryson to even be at my house. Was Doug, to your knowledge, was Doug a friend of Randy's? No. No. Now, they spoke. I mean, everybody in the worst racing world tries to get along. Mm -hmm. But so far as trusting, mm -hmm. Randy would have never trusted Doug to do nothing. When I learned of Doug, I gathered from my brother that um, he wasn't to be trusted. Pretty strong words. But what does it mean? Perhaps nothing. Perhaps Mr. Fryson was somehow just available and doing what he could do to help out. We don't know for sure. We just know that Doug and Linda got along and Randy didn't care for him. We'll try to sort that out later. We do know that the whole thing left Carlos Wilkerson hurt and bewildered. And frankly, he was beginning to wonder about all of it. From her story, she said she got shot at. So that was my first thing. I'm trying to see where did the bullet go that they shot at her. We never found another bullet, straight Linda bullet. said she was shot at? That's what she, that was her story. She got, she was shot at. She told that to you? Yeah, she told that to, to the police. That was, that was her story, her first story. So you looked for the bullet? Holes. I looked for the bullet. I looked in every wall. I looked at the edge of the couch. And I stood in the door and looked. If he, she was turning and going down the hallway where she said she was going, he shot at her. And I, to this day, I never found a bullet hole. Hold everything. Is this true? I mean, she never told me that she was shot at. I was desperate to get a hold of the supplementary detective's reports to see if I could corroborate what Carlos was telling me. So far, he had been an extremely credible source. But it was going to be up to Lieutenant Zach Burdett, who heads up the cold case squad in Savannah, as to what they were going to share with me. And it's tough because it's a homicide and therefore still an open case. Let's hear the rest of Carlos's experience at the house. So her story was, she went down the hall, and when she got to her bedroom, she grabbed the phone off the nightstand. And I ran that back through my mind, so I went to the nightstand, and when I looked, there's a pistol laying right by, if you would have reached six inches from that phone, to that gun is how close the gun would have been if that was the case. Do you know what kind of gun it was? Uh, a small revolver, I mean a small automatic pistol. Here's Randy's brother Bobby describing his experience with what he recalled from the cleanup of the crime scene. In, in the master bedroom, when I was just looking, you know, just seeing, trying to see if anything was out of place or connect the dots, mm -hmm. I did find a pistol in the headboard of the bed. It looks like there were some shelves, and you could slide this little thing back. And that, that was, was part the, of the headboard of the bed? Yes, of the master bed. What kind of pistol was it? It looked like a semi-automatic. So now I've got Bobby Stevens and Carlos Wilkerson back at the crime scene with the unfortunate task of cleaning up. In the process, they both come across a pistol. Now, Bobby Stevens claims that he found it in the headboard of a bed where Carlos claims that he found it on a phone table. Now, these things are only about six feet apart, and they're claiming it's the same pistol, it's the same caliber. But I really wanted to understand what could affect 
this inconsistency in the recall of specifics. So we turn to our friend, Dr. Kenneth Pound, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and a clinical professor in psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. I ask him to shed a little bit of light on this memory issue. Here's Dr. Pound. You don't have to go back 20 years to have faulty memory or to have differences in the kinds of memories that uh, are elicited by witnesses. Memory is in inherently a very tricky mechanism. It's, it's quite faulty. It's quite um, given to uh, molding by psychological factors, cognitive processes, and with regard to the the witnesses who believe they saw the gun different places in a bedroom you know you might have had the same discrepancies even you know a week ago uh there's a a well-known you know phenomenon which we refer to as the rashomon effect named after the classic kurosawa film rashomon which dealt with a, a a rape murder that was witnessed by a handful of people, each of which gave very, very different account of what they saw. What it illustrates is really the ways that different people hold memories differently from each other. It's not simply a question of memory, it's also a question of processing and coding, sort of how do you, and perception, how, uh, how do you perceive events uh, events are perceived very much through uh, subjective lenses so a person's psychological conflicts anxieties wishes um, will play a very big role in how they process information how they take it in even if they both did see the gun the the what the, the way they painted the specifics doesn't mean they didn't find it it just means they're remembering it differently. It could be, absolutely. It could be, and it's, um, as I said, it's not a question of even the long-term memory being the problem. The problem is the subjective process on perception and memory. And so you can have, it's not unusual to have two people who have very different memories of very specific things like the location of something This time span issue plays a part. I mean, for certain it does. However, the main or the biggest part, as Dr. Pound made clear, is that where it truly happens is when a person is forming their memories early on. And as he says, it doesn't have to take 20 years. Their memories about this issue could differ from one another within the first week. And also, they're forming them based on a number of circumstances that are highly personal and specific to multiple factors. It's not necessarily so that they are eroded and rearranged as time passes, but as he says, is that they are formed, and formed being the important word, through a subjective lens. This, of course, being the main reason that so many eyewitnesses are discredited so easily. Based on your experience with memory and recollection, would you trust eyewitness testimony that was two decades old? Tell us what you think by going to Juror13.live and casting your vote. That's Juror13.live. Juror13.live. You are Juror13. 
Sometimes, though, it's hard for us to determine if stories are changing or if memory is. For instance, important details about the crime as it occurred. Linda stated clearly to me that there had been one assailant. She never told me that she had been shot at, and yet Carlos Wilkerson claims that he learned from Linda that she stated that she had been shot at. And Bobby claims that he learned from her that there were not one but two assailants. There were supposed to be two masked men there mm-hmm. with masks on. Randy went to his truck, from what Linda said. On his way back in the house, she said that two people attacked him from outside. Mm-hmm. And She said two people attacked him? Yes, yeah, she said there were two masked men. You can see what we're faced with. The trick is to sift through the inconsistencies that are not really germane to the bigger issues. Which brings us to one of the more troubling moments of this entire case. Randy's truck was left running the entire time that the family had been at the hospital. And when Bobby and Linda and the others had finally returned to the house, Bobby noticed this and went over to turn it off. The fact that the truck was still running means two things. It had probably never been processed by the detectives in the crime scene squad. And if it had, they missed two big details. The first one, which we'll discuss right now, is a suitcase. I asked a few people the same question. Was there really a suitcase in the back of Randy's truck? And if so, why was he taking it to work? Here's Carlos Wilkerson. He told me he was done. He said, um... I'm, I'm leaving, I'm going to stay with mom and them. And, um, and he told me he changed the wheel, but we couldn't ever find it, so. Um, he also, uh, there may have been another woman that he was uh, in love with that he may have been leaving for that reason as well. I don't know if that was the reason for him leaving. From what he was telling me, he's just tired of the, the crap that he had to put up with. Could it have added to it? It could have. Here's Bobby Stevens describing the last conversation that he ever had with Randy the night before the murder. Talking to him and he said, um, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. I said, leaving to do what? He said, I'm going to um, move to Douglas, Georgia. And um, with I said, okay. I said, well, do you think it's a good idea to stay here tonight if, if you're going to leave tomorrow? He said, Bobby, I'll be fine, man. I said, well, you can go over to the condo because I, at that point, had moved back in with my family, and no one was living in the condo, and I hadn't rented it out yet. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, just go over there and crash, you know, and um, call me in the morning when you get ready to leave unknowingly that he wouldn't have made it till that morning, <laughs> you know, because I got that's the, morning, the following morning I got the call that uh, so he this, was shot. That's the last conversation you had? Yeah, that's the last conversation I had with my brother. And, and I knew that when I got there, the truck was running and the suitcase was in there. You, you observed the suitcase? I saw that myself. Okay. Yeah, I went to the truck, looked in it, so it's possible that he had told her that morning. He either told her or she saw something. And as if it couldn't get more ominous, 
Sandra Stevens Smalls tells us about measures that Randy had put in place just in case something did go wrong. Randy um, was stating he was married and he was seeing someone and one of his co-workers knew that if something happened to Randy to contact this female and that co-worker had the phone number in order to get in contact with her. We've got a whole new situation to look at now. Bobby Stevens and Carlos Wilkerson are alleging that Randy was having an affair and that Linda Stevens had knowledge of it. They claim along with Sandra, Randy's sister, that everyone knew he was leaving for good that morning, October 10th. And there are conflicting reports of the number of assailants and as to whether or not there was a suitcase left in the truck that morning. However, these are only claims. We'll talk to Linda Stevens, whom I spoke with on three separate occasions. I have to say that her story never really changed in any of those meetings. So is this, as we learned from Dr. Pound in our discussion of witness memory, just all a case of conflated and skewed recollection? Hopefully, with the help of Savannah's cold case squad, we can clear up some of these details by looking at the reports. We'll speak with Linda for her reactions to these claims, and we'll talk with Randy's brother and sister, Bobby and Sandra, on the next Juror 13. I know I talked to you all about Crime Stoppers last week and the value that this tremendous anonymous program holds. The Randy Stevens case has a reward for $80,000. And I've stated that before. Everybody knows that now. There's $80,000 out there if you can help solve the case. I know that you are out there. I know that you are. I know that you're listening, and I know that you know something about this case. So take a good long look in the mirror and understand that there's a big difference between doing the right thing and snitching. So choose to do the right thing. The Stevens family needs your help. Click on Crime Stoppers logo or press play on the Crime Stoppers Executive Director Brittany Heron's explanation of how to go about helping and collecting your reward. Juror13.live. When the episode is over, the facts remain. Juror13.live. Photos, facts, and faces. See the people and the events that we talk about in every episode. Read opinions, reports, and theories. Vote on Juror13.live. You are Juror13. Interact with special guests on announced dates and post your opinions and surveys about certain people, places, and things associated with Juror13. Download episodes. Join our first alerts list. Help us to help the Stevens family, folks. Remember, you can listen to new episodes of Juror 13 weekly on Spotify, or you can just listen to any past episode or update at any time you desire on Juror13.live. Juror 13 relies on your support to continue our mission. If you'd like to become part of what we're doing, we gratefully accept any contribution. Simply click on the coffee cup icon and choose any amount, or just follow the prompts. We thank you. Thanks for listening to Juror 13. Juror 13 would like to thank Ashley Roberson, Nathaniel D. Smalls, Carlos Wilkerson, Sandra Stevens Smalls, Bobby Stevens, Linda Stevens, Dr. Kenneth Pound, Maya Eschett, 
and as always, the sensational Martine Rothstein, my producer. My name is Tom Milady. Thanks for listening to Jura 13. And remember, new episodes every Tuesday. Jura 13 is an Empty Nest production. <laughs>